This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Sexy and Surreal, a David Lynch and David Cronenberg podcast. I'm Joe Lipset, and I'm joined as always by Mr. Terry Menard. Hi, Terry. Hey, Joe. I'm uh, I'm sitting here with my coffee, but I I do have to ask: How mm-hmm. do you take your coffee? Black as midnight and on a moonlightless night. <laughs> I'll confess, I definitely don't take it black like Agent Dale Cooper. Uh, I'm probably a little bit closer to. Oh, who who takes it with like cream and sugar? That's probably more me. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I found like a, a friend in Dale with his uh, black as midnight on a moon, moonless night because I do love my my coffee dark mm. and heavy (laughs) (laughs) yeah see i find it too bitter i need like a little bit of the fat so i guess i'm a donna and you're a dale that's what we've learned there we go (laughs) (laughs) so folks we are talking about this is very confusing terry and i have already tried to figure this out offline but we're watching episode two and three which are technically episode one traces to nowhere and episode two zen or the skill to catch a killer so uh, basically the the first two episodes after the pilot of twin peaks yeah it was very weird when when uh when you messaged me joe and and you're telling me that you know this is episode one and two technically and i'm looking on my my end and it's episodes two and three and i just Mm -hmm. it just feels very lynchian Right? (laughs) What a perfect encapsulation of the things we get to talk about with this creator. Well, this is the fun thing about Traces to Nowhere is that it's actually directed by Dwayne Dunham, but it's written by Mark Frost and David Lynch, the show creators and showrunners. And then episode three or two zen or the skill to catch a killer is in fact directed by david lynch and it's the last directed episode he will do in season one so he'll come back and do the first two episodes of season two but uh this will be fun for us to try to figure out how we want to cover the rest of the show as we move forward because he does take a step back because he's also making wild at heart at the same time as this uh yeah now did he write any of the other ones because I'm, uh, I'm looking, and I, I know that he has like the ser- the showrunner series creator uh, mm-hmm. tag, but I'm I'm curious where did he write any of the rest? Not season one, no. So okay. he delegates that to other people. I think Mark Frost ends up kind of saying, "Hey, you know what? I know you're making this movie, so we've got the map ready to go." So I think they worked on the story, and then the actual teleplays are done by other people. Okay, yeah, all right. But you know what? That's an issue for another day because we've got these two episodes that Lynch does have a very direct hand in. And I'm curious, Terry, as a bit of a Twin Peaks virgin, what did you make of these two episodes? I don't <laughs> honestly know how to answer that, Joe. Fair, fair. Mm-hmm. I what I love about episode two when we the very first opening is we got this this camera and we have like Dale hanging upside down mm-hmm. as he is talking into his uh what it what even is it a cassette player? It's a tape recorder. Yeah, tape recorder about what he's what he's doing here and he uh, he's like talking about how much something's troubling him and you're like ooh what is it going to be and then he's talking about Marilyn and the Kennedys and who pulled the trigger <laughs> I love that kind of kind of bait and switch thing that is going on here because I feel that that is sort of what 
the show is kind of doing to the audience in mm-hmm. a way, because while Laura Palmer's death hangs over everything that we've seen so far at like a Paul, it's le- it's become it feels like it's becoming less about that, that like that's even maybe a MacGuffin to kind of mm-hmm. an entry point to explore this town, which right. I think is an interesting thing in particular, when we, we talk about the, the kind of dead girl subgenre of, oh, yeah. of thrillers, it's interesting that while there is a lot of her here, I'm feeling like the focus is less on that, if that makes sense. Well, what's interesting is that you have actually hit on David Lynch and Mark Frost's intention. So this is where some of the tension will arise as the series progresses, because of course, what hooks audiences is this mystery of like, what happened with the dead girl? They want to know who the killer is, they want to know what the motive was and that kind of stuff. And the same with the ABC brass who commissioned this. But the reality is, is that the show creators weren't as interested in that. They wanted to explore this kind of secrets in a small town quirky characters bit. And you can feel that in a lot of the episodes as you go forward, where we've just got these eccentric characters like the log lady, even, you know, um, the Thorn brothers, like in episode three, when we introduce Audrey's uncle and Ben's brother, Jerry. So we've got Ben and Jerry, and they're just weird and kooky. And they spend the first couple minutes of the episode eating sandwiches that Jerry has brought back from France because brie and butter and baguettes are so good. I love that he's eating these sandwiches the wrong way, too. Mm-hmm. Like, they're just... just- diving into like the middle of the sandwich and eating it like it's a corn of corn like a corn on the cob it's so bizarre it's very bizarre and and really that's the encapsulation of the entire series it's just a bunch of bizarre eccentric characters who are kind of living their lives with the mystery hanging over their heads you know we start to see this more in puzzle films and and television series of this nature right it's the push and pull between what is driving the story is it the characters or is it the mystery and depending on which one you go for will probably determine how satisfied you are so i think episode 2 is a really great encapsulation of the the plot is sort of immaterial let's re-meet these characters, right? So we've got that fantastic opening segment where (laughs) Dale Cooper goes into the sheriff's department and we're just catching people with donuts in their mouths. (laughs) The imagery in this is really great. I love love that moment. And then I also love later on, after we get this weird um, Tibetan... Oh my god! Mind thing. <laughs> then all of a sudden, Lucy is reading a book that just says Tibet on the mm-hmm. cover. And there's just like these little small details like that that I find so fantastic in in this show so far. And I, I don't know. It's almost as like David Lynch and and, and Frost are kind of taking the piss out of what's happening. And I just mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, it, it's very silly in equal measure as it is like bizarre and kind of what the fuckery like there's some really great moments in these episodes but there's also some very highly comedic moments and other moments where you just think i don't even know what to make of this like every time i rewatch the series i think that nadine is the weirdest character i've maybe ever seen on television because she's a one-eyed woman so immediately you're just kind of like well what happened with that eye is there a story i want to know yeah But she spends the entirety of, I think, the first season trying to do these soundless drape runners. And you keep thinking, is this going to be important? Is it just a character quirk? What is this woman's story? Is any of this important? It's just kind of Twin Peaks. 
I love her. Her <laughs> and Log Lady right now. I just, I want to know more about them. And I think that's one of the interesting things that the show does is because, yes, it has like the, I think the, the kind of tagline is who killed Laura Palmer. And that's been sort mm-hmm. of like the thing that I, I believe audiences probably wanted at the time is a murder mystery. Right. But what, what I find so fascinating is these characters in here. And I'm just like, okay, I don't really care about Laura Palmer. I want to know about her. What is her deal? What is her deal with the log? What is mm-hmm. Nadine's deal with the eye, with, with missing her eye and wearing the, very comically large uh, kind of pirate eye patch almost. And then also her fascination with making soundless um, drape runners that she Mm -hmm. manages to succeed because of oil on cotton balls. I don't know how this is working, Joe, but I am fascinated. (laughs) It's so bizarre. Like some people like you find it very amusing or interesting. They do want to know more. And then I think there's a bunch of other people who are like, can we please get back to like, what is Dr. Jacoby doing with Laura's half of the necklace in his coconut thing at the end of episode two? Yeah, I I, I think that this is because I'm watching this in 2023, where we've had dozens, hundreds of shows that are aping this kind of style. And so Mm -hmm. for me, it just feels natural, weird. Absolutely. I don't think in any of the like the prestige television that I'd be watching recently, we would have a log lady, right? That or or it'd be like played a little too campy, whereas this feels Mm -hmm. very, as much as it's weird, it feels very grounded. In a, yeah. in a bizarre way. But I think it's because I'm watching all of these shows that, that are obviously influenced by this. And I was thinking as I was taking my notes, what would I have thought back in, what, 1990? Is that mm-hmm. when this started, Aaron? 1991, yep. around there? Somewhere around in that area. What would I think if I were like, ooh, murder mystery, Laura Palmer, got to find out what's happening to her. And then I sit down and this is what I'm being presented with. I have to, I have to think that I would also be kind of upset about it because I don't have 20, 30, 40 years of like television that has come since then that has Mm -hmm. like this kind of essence already in it. Like this is a first of its kind in some ways, I believe. Yeah. I I mean, I'm I'm be curious to know if we have older listeners who are thinking like, no, we can tell you about a dozen other derivations that were coming before this, but this was definitely an out of the box sensation at a particular time, right? Like, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page and the pilot, which we talked about last time, garnered 34.6 million viewers. So, like, obviously massive. And then this second episode drops to 23.2, and the third episode drops even further to 19.2. And the series would continue to kind of, like, fluctuate a little bit. It evens out a mostly by the end of season one and then it kind of bumps back up for the start of season two and then it just craters when people start to realize either we're not going to be satisfied with the killer reveal which does occur in season two midway through but also this is the kind of like burns bright like it makes a massive impact and then it flares out when people start to realize oh i'm not sure i want this as a sustainable entertainment form like there's something novel about it and i think these first couple of episodes really capture that right like oh Mm -hmm. i'm watching a log lady on my tv but it's not being presented as a ridiculous thing like she is just a citizen of this town and nobody blinks even dale who who does seem a little incredulous about it like Mm -hmm. he wants to know more about her and and sort of like what's the deal with the log right even he just sort of 
picks it up and just runs with it. it, sure. it it's everything is nonchalant about what happens in this town mm-hmm. when what is happening in this town is absolutely bonkers and and surreal. And these two episodes kind of introduce a more supernatural element to it in mm-hmm. um, a very kind of sly way, particularly when um, I'm thinking of Laura's mom who right. ends up getting this this brief i'm gonna say vision because mm-hmm. it feels like well bob is not actually there so it's definitely a vision yeah well y- yes but i mean like more of like a, i guess a flashback vision in a way because mm-hmm. she is like in a living room and bob i is like hiding behind what looks like a bed mm-hmm. and so i'm thinking is was he in is she seeing like reminding remembering something that she saw in laura's room of him hiding there or what what is going on in that scene? It just, it has some kind of, it feels very surreal. And I had to rewind it to think, wait, no, she is not in Laura's room. She mm-hmm. is in her living room when this is happening. Yeah. It's wild. Right. And then of course we see this character again in the third episode, which really dips. Like it's the closest that we've come to the kind of classic film surrealism that we've seen from Lynch where, as you predicted, we finally get to the red room. We've got the dwarf. We've got mm-hmm. Bob. And then we've also got the one-armed man. So, like, that's when things really start to get out there. But, you know, before that, this moment in episode two, the brief flash of Bob, it does suggest that there's something otherworldly or supernatural or even like a kind of weird psychic phenomenon and the show loves to dance along that edge where sometimes it's very silly and comedic but other times it is interested in being really unnerving or taking you outside of this comfort zone which is such a delicate balance because as we said you know log lady treated normally but then we've also got psychic visions and we don't understand the context and they're somehow happening in the same couple of episodes i have to say also that the the reveal of bob when he is in her vision is Mm -hmm. really unnerving it is creepy it is a moment of of horror it's almost played like a jump scare Mm -hmm. i really would like to know what people thought when they were watching this live on television with these with these little moments of surreal horror that get that are peppered through these two episodes Mm -hmm. i can tell you that the character of bob provides one of the scariest sequences i've ever seen on network television like twin peaks I have a a very nostalgic relationship with Twin Peaks, even though I didn't watch it when it was first airing. I was way too young. I caught it when I was, I think, in the first year of university. And it ended up really affecting me. Like, some of the moments of horror or, like, some of the scariness of this series is so fucking effective. It has absolutely stayed with me. So there's, I think it's a moment in season two, but it involves Bob. And it's the most nonchalant kind of thing. And yet I find it absolutely horrifying. Hmm. But I mean, you'll, you'll experience the same kind of thing with like a character who comes out from behind a dumpster in Mulholland Drive when we get to that one later. Oh, I've heard about that scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's like <laughs> the, a very famous moment. Right. I'm excited for that. Yeah. But the, okay. I know we're kind of jumping around all over the place, but I do want to talk a little bit about the red room because sure. in this moment, I was wondering, now that we have Twin Peaks The Return set years later, mm-hmm. in this red room, Dale is old. Yes. And I'm, I was wondering, hmm, 
does that ever get paid off in the return? Because, of course, the return is set years later and he will be older at that point. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of curious if that if this is like a, a connective tissue to that. It absolutely is. So we will see the Red Room more as the series progresses. But there is a definitive line that anticipates the return that fans were very eager to see if it would kind of pay off. And I don't want to say too too much more depending on how much more of this initial two season run we do cover because uh i can tell you that both seasons end in cliffhangers and obviously the season two cliffhanger does not get paid off because the show was canceled (laughs) and then we don't have anything new for 25 years that's a long time i mean people grouse Mm -hmm. about george r R. martin and his uh inability to finish a series but boy that's even longer yeah, and we never thought we were going to get the return. And of course, it's David Lynch, so the return doesn't answer everything. Uh, I can also tell you that some of this stuff does get paid off in a weird way with David Lynch's prequel film, Buyer Walk With Me, which of course is a line that we do hear uttered in the Red Room in this third episode. We do, and it also shows up written, I think, in the in the pilot from what I remember. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's in the train car where uh, Ronette walked away from. Mm. Yeah, so some interesting things. I mean, one of the things that I love the most about this Red Room sequence is just how you can use a, a technical aspect to create something really weird, a little unnerving, and just completely distinct. So the the dwarf, as well as Laura, seem to be speaking in a very unnatural way, right? So what Lynch had the actors do was they had to speak the line backwards, and then he would reverse it so that they were speaking, quote-unquote, normally. But because they had to speak it backwards, it doesn't sound quite right. Okay. I was wondering what was going on there, because, I, well, first of all, I was glad there were subtitles. But mm-hmm. two, oh, yeah. I'm watching this, and I'm like... I can understand what they're saying, but it sounds as if it should be in reverse. And I was mm-hmm. really, it really threw me for a loop because I was expecting, there's that sound when people play things in reverse that just, yes. obviously it's, it's mechanical and it has that kind of sound to it. And it, this was happening here, but mm-hmm. they weren't talking in reverse. It's like, how am I understanding what they're saying? But it has that kind of <laughs> reverb that we hear when right. things are filmed in reverse. I'm like, what is happening? And meanwhile, Dale is speaking normally. So right. it creates even more of this kind of oral disjunction, which is just like, it's so incredibly effective. I just, I can't, I just cannot believe that this was on network TV. I, no. I think about. <laughs> I think about even now the shows that are on network TV and they're very, um, Mm -hmm. they're just safer, right? Yes. Even though there's some really good stuff on broadcast television, it feels very conventional and this is Mm -hmm. anything but conventional. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like the, the fact that I can imagine that the pilot got made, right? Like, okay, it's David Lynch academy award nominee we want to do stuff with him so absolutely let's throw a pile of money at him and get him to do this thing and then we'll soften the edges of it if it actually goes to series because that's the other important thing right like you make a pilot in a vacuum in these days and then if it gets Mm -hmm. picked up it goes to series which is why we have the weird episode numbering because most people would consider a pilot episode one but in that case it was like well we commissioned him to basically just make a movie and then we make a series and hence some people refer to the second episode as episode one right now one of the things that's confusing to me and it's something that did not feel confusing to me as i was watching it but then i too went to the wikipedia page and i was looking under themes and this was of the uh episode 
the Zen or the skill to catch a killer. Mm-hmm. So technically episode two, um, <laughs> there is this, the statement in the theme section where they're talking about Ben and Jerry, which mm-hmm. ice cream, like that I just yep. immediately jumps to me as ice cream. And it's, it's very funny to me, Yeah, but they go to this brothel and yes, there's this comment where in, in, in the Wikipedia page, it says both incest and violent sexuality would become recurring themes for the series. Example of which include Palmer's late murder and possible molestation of his niece, Maddie and Benjamin Horn's unwitting brush with incest with his masked daughter. Mm-hmm. His masked daughter was there. So, um, you, you've spoiled yourself a little bit. This is something oh. that doesn't play in this particular episode, but as okay. we learn more about One-Eyed Jack and what Laura was up to, uh, yes, basically there's an implied incest, but not, it, the characters didn't know who they were interacting with. Okay. Cause like, I was like, did I, was I, was I supposed to catch something that I just absolutely Mm -hmm. missed? I was like a little embarrassed. Like, I didn't get that at all in this. (laughs) No, the the important takeaways from these scenes is like really episode two and three in terms of the plot. The big things that you're meant to take away from this is, uh, the stuff at One Eye Jacks, which is the casino slash brothel, which I love that it is across the lake, aka in Canada. So we're crossing the border. Order to go to apparently <laughs> looser restrictions where we can just run an underage brothel. Sure. Okay. <laughs> well, that whole scene just kind of grossed me out too because oh, it's there's disgusting. Yeah. The line, there's a new girl at One Eye Jacks, freshly scented. I'm like, mm-hmm. ew. Yeah. And the brothers want to compete to see who essentially gets to deflower her first. Ew. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, Benjamin Horn is a really despicable character. We also learned that he is screwing Catherine Tremell, who is the co-owner of the lumber mill, and they basically have active plans to torpedo the mill's success so that they can blame Josie Packard. So the other problem I've had with this is that also since it has been a little bit of a minute since we did record the twin, the original Twin Peaks episode, mm-hmm. I am still having a hard time keeping characters straight. Oh, of course. Yeah. There's so many of them, too. There's so many. This whole show kind of feels, I mean, not incestual, but like there's there's so many characters that are related to each other or, mm-hmm. or doing things with each other that I'm just yep. like, I'm having a hard time keeping track of of everyone and their names when we're going mm-hmm. through this. And I'm so constantly referring back to IMDb and going, who is this? Who is that? Right. Or Wikipedia to try to like pull everything together. Cause it just sort of drops you in and runs with it. It really does. Yeah. And because everybody sort of gets a little something to do, or we frequently check in with nearly every character, it can be very difficult to remember. Okay. So that person, they only had a moment last episode. Where are they? What is their connection? Like I really appreciate in episode three when we're doing the kind of, <laughs> uh, agent Cooper's Tibetan dream exercise Ugh. where we are throwing rocks at a bottle to try to figure out Laura's connection to J names. And it's like, Harry, Sheriff Harry Truman, can you please 
when you say the person's name, can you say their relationship to Laura? And you're just like, oh, this is for the audience's benefit. <laughs> yes, I, I was really happy with that, particularly with the little flashback images that we get. So it's mm-hmm. like, oh, these are the characters. These are the relationships. I was like, thank you for this. I really, yep. <laughs> I honestly really appreciated it. Thank you for this weird little rock tossing competition thing. I also yep. really enjoyed that we that they bring up one eye Jack and people are like, there's no I in Jack is what Lucy mm-hmm. says, which cracks me up. But then they, they're <laughs> thinking it's a person when it's not a person. And right. I just I love that because, again, when you have something named one I Jack and then it's briefly mentioned, but then the name just keeps coming up. Mm-hmm. You start to immediately think of a person because why wouldn't there be a person named one I Jack in this town that has a log lady and Nadine with a giant eye patch? Exactly. It, make, it would you would think that that would be so. So I, I do appreciate that that sequence sort of kind of narrows the focus in terms of the the murder mystery aspect of it to mm-hmm. kind of bring everything together and why they're important. Yeah, I, I think for me, like episode two is fine. You know, it's a very traditional second episode of a TV show where we're kind of reintroducing people. I have a huge issue with one of the character developments, which is James Hurley, the kind of James Dean stand-in being in love with Donna, who is the Laura Flynn Boyle uh, character, the best friend, it's a complete retcon between the pilot and the second episode. And you just got to go with it because we don't ever look back on this. Like these two will be in love for the rest of the series or at least season one. And you're just kind of like, okay, I guess. Sure. I wondered about that because again, it has been a minute since we, since I have seen the pilot episode between this and this recording. Mm-hmm. But then I was like, I, I thought he was given the half of the necklace yep. or he had the half of the necklace. And I was like, and I thought he was really in love. So they buried it in the ground, the two of them. And supposedly this is also when they discovered they loved each other. And then <laughs> the last image of the pilot is someone in black gloves digging up the locket. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it is, but their relationship, I was like, wait, they mm-hmm. are definitely in love here, and I don't remember that really being a thing in, nope. in the pilot. But then I just attributed it to it that it had been a minute since I had seen the pilot. <laughs> yeah, I think it was just something that they decided between shooting the pilot and then when they actually went to series. And they thought, okay, you know what? We don't want to do the greeting best friend and the brooding, you know, secret boyfriend. Let's keep that aspect, but also let's give the kids a little something more to do. Yeah, I get it. And you need to uh, you need to have a love story. It's so important sure. in these things <laughs> on television. Yeah. You got to ground <laughs> it and be like, oh, they're in love. Well, particularly when you're trying to cater to a four quadrant audience, right? Like, I yes. think the adults are going to be hooked into the mystery and the sexy shenanigans. But for teenagers, you want to see hot, hot Laura Flynn Boyle, as well as whatever this young actor's name is, who's like, he's a blank slate but he's very attractive so yeah i, I mean the, the cast in this is is really attractive overall i just there's something watching odd audrey i just i love well first of all she's given the femme fatale like music score right mm-hmm. and it continues into these episodes every time she shows up it's like we just switch to smooth jazz again <laughs> well and i also love the moment when she goes in the into the diner and she picks basically the same song mm-hmm. on the diner and so we have music that is like part of the the show and then we also have this this non-diegetic music that is playing and i just i love that i love that we are that this is this is our oral introduction to her character and she just is dancing 
in the diner to the song that is playing on the jukebox, but is also kind of the song that we hear and associate with her. Mm-hmm. It's it's so interesting. It's wild because she truly does feel like she's kind of off in her own show a lot of the time. She really does. <laughs> Okay, so there's one other character that I definitely want to raise because he will be important to the plot. And it feels like the show recognizes that we need to do more with him in episode two and three. So I believe technically we had met Leo Johnson, who is played by Eric DeRay in the pilot, but it was it wasn't much like this is uh, Shelley, the waitress's boyfriend who Uh, drives mm -hmm. the long distance truck and she's of course having the affair with bobby who was technically laura's boyfriend he's the one who's in jail at the beginning of these episodes yep and leo gives shelly a bloody shirt and then beats her when he realizes because he didn't mean to give it to her and she of course hides it because it's incriminating evidence but then he also abuses her and we see him doing a drug deal with bobby and mike in the woods and he's like very unhinged he's so unhinged and honestly that scene where he with without showing it Mm -hmm. the the way that that they are able to make this very disturbing moment of him taking the soap and putting it into a sock and then yep. walking and the sound of it yep. is just, it's enough to just without showing anything, just set you on edge and it's horrifying. And it just really shows him as, as like one of the horrible characters in this. And then again, we see him with cutting open a, a football and you're like, what is going on here? And that mm-hmm. gets paid off later because that's where he is storing the cocaine in, in the, in the woods and, mm-hmm. That whole thing, I'm like, I'm wondering how if that is a side story or if that is going to tie into what is happening in here. Because there just seems to be a lot of, well, intertown politicking and intertown drama that is happening Mm -hmm. intermidst this uh, investigation. Yeah, I remember the first time I watched the series, that was, I I was a little more centrally focused on the Who Killed Laura Palmer, like, give me the mysteries kind of Mm -hmm. aspect. This was the storyline that I ended up really gravitating to, because one of the weirdest things about Twin Peaks is how it gives off this kind of small town, very, you know... You know, like it, it's a logging town and everybody mm-hmm. knows each other and it, it has a very suburban kind of domestic feel to it. We're spending a lot of time in people's houses and diners, like small town Americana vibes. And yet as we progress, like particularly in these two episodes, we learn that there is a whole drug trafficking thing <laughs> with Leo's character. And then also we pay a visit to a fucking brothel that maybe has underage girls at it at the bare minimum. So you're, you're kind of like, wait, there is a lot of seediness to the small town aspects. And I love that that's one of the things that Twin Peaks balances. You, you said a line that just like really stuck with me, how it's small town, everyone knows everyone. Mm-hmm. And what I think this show is doing a really good job is everyone knows everyone, but everyone does not know everyone because there's yeah. all of these as you said, CD things that are going on in the background that the rest of the town don't know about. So they think mm-hmm. they know everyone perfectly, but there's so much more story kind of going um, behind the scenes. Right. And it reminded me again of, of blue velvet, particularly the way that, that uh, movie opened mm-hmm. where we have sort of like the look of 
small, like suburbia kind of thing. And the, there's the, the beautiful grass that's been manicured. And we go in and we see that underneath this, this bright green glass is writhing insects and darkness and, and mm-hmm. horrible looking things. And that is less, uh, strikingly, but also kind of following the same path here with, with the kind of, the drugs that are going behind, the people cheating on each other, the all all of this sort of things that are happening, is not as visually arresting as that opening, but it, it's still mm-hmm. kind of mining the same kind of thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. The fact that these are coming out the same year tells me that David Lynch was obsessed with this idea of <laughs> mm-hmm. what is going on beneath the surface of sort of the small town, perfect Americana kind of vibe, and. It's also fun because, like, particularly in episode three, there's a moment where we see, I think it's Shelly or maybe Donna is watching TV. And it's a, like, nighttime soap called Invitation to Love. And this is one of the things that Twin Peaks fans really ended up latching onto is they were like, oh, my God, how, like, you get to see a little bit more of this soap as the series progresses. It's, like, one of the things that people watch on the show. But it reminds you that Twin Peaks at its core is also a nighttime soap. Like, this is such a domestic kind of suburban thing where it's like these characters are fucking around behind each other's backs and they're all telling lies and they've got all these secrets. And it it is like Twin Peaks at its core is a soap and a murder mystery. But then there's this critique that Lynch has embedded in it as well. What's funny I, when I when I saw that, I immediately like laughed because that has been a trope that I've seen used a whole lot, particularly mm-hmm. there's this. So there's this video game company called Remedy, and they made a game years ago called Alan Wake, which is about a writer. And it's very Stephen King-esque type. Okay. But while you're playing as him and you're walking through this horrible world that has been corrupted by darkness and it's not needed, not, it's not needed, but what you do see is <laughs> in the midst of all this like horror, you come across TVs and you sit there and you can watch like a scene play out from some kind of show. And right. that continues throughout the entire game of you seeing these like televisions that are telling this other side story that maybe kind of is a critique or influencing what is happening in the game. But I see this and I'm like, oh, this is totally twin peaks now and i i'm seeing like Mm. the reverberations that this show is kind of doing uh through multiple different kinds of media in the future and i just i I think that's really cool yeah yeah like it's hard when people don't openly acknowledge what kinds of things they're paying homage to and yet yeah when you look at the kind of timeline you think all right well it's entirely possible that this was a driving factor in it because like people watch the show. We, we ran the numbers. This was huge. Mm-hmm. Like it was water cooler sensation. Everyone was talking about Twin Peaks. Well, and even, even not just the number of people, but I think that it's obvious that, that David Lynch and Mark Frost have influenced other f- filmmakers, creators that are just like enamored with the sort of feeling that they created with this and try to recreate it themselves. Mm-hmm. I think that's really cool when you see just how strong of a presence Twin Peaks has had in in everything since then. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So, yeah, we've, we've covered the first three episodes of the first season. And I think when we come back, uh, you know, we'll, we'll basically jump into season two and see sort of how far the mystery has progressed. But I'm, I guess I'm curious. Are you 
Is this a show that you would continue watching independently or are you kind of like, hmm, this is a novel exercise, but it's also showing its age? I don't honestly know because when I had watched, tried to watch this once before, uh, this is as far as I got. I got right. to the Tibet episode with the, the rock throwing mm-hmm. and I was like, this is interesting. And then I never came back to it. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I I don't I don't honestly know how to answer that. Like I do want to to watch it for conversational and for exploring uh Lynch's, you know, filmography and his 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 this isn't a film, but like his his over of work, but I I honestly don't know. And and it's probably because I've seen so much referencing and riffing on this that it mm-hmm. it, it has that that feeling of like I've already seen this even uh, though I see. Hmm. Technically I haven't already seen this. You know what I mean? It, it's weird. Mm-hmm. It's hard to go back and watch things that were obviously hugely influential because you feel like you've already seen it. It's just that you've seen it through other people's eyes who were directly influenced by it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe that's a conversation for another day. But uh, Mr. Terry, if people want to talk to you about how you take your coffee or which donut from that giant table you would eat... How would they get in touch? Uh, you will find me on Twitter and Instagram at Gaily Dreadful. And Joe, if they want to learn the virtues of recording in reverse and playing it forward, um, <laughs> <laughs> where would they find you? I can be reached at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. And of course, if you uh, want to get a hold of both of us, or if you just want to like listen to the rest of the podcast on the network, uh, which you should, by the way, which you should, yeah, uh, you can follow along uh, the Anatomy of a Screen Pod Squad Network, which is the home base for all of the shows mr terry we have to jump back over to the other half of the podcast next time so we're catching up with mr cronenberg and i'm excited for this one because you have seen this film and i have not so we're going to be talking about 1983's the dead zone oh yes (laughs) christopher walken Hmm. Yeah, it's wild to me that he made this film and Videodrome in the same year. Same year. Ugh. Yeah. So yeah, um, we will be back next time to talk about that very commercial effort from Mr. Cronenberg. It's uh, the first film of his that we're talking about that he doesn't write. Yeah. But uh, until then, I don't know, like, Write down a note when you hit or break a glass bottle that has a J associated with it. <laughs> or when you're going to order your breakfast, you want you want it to be hard on the arteries, but old habits die hard, almost as hard as the eggs. I, <laughs> and I want that bacon super oh my crispy and cremated. Cremated bacon. That is a choice. Can you imagine? No, no. I like crispy, but not cremated. <laughs> squad.